you open your Bibles again this time to Hebrews chapter 8. In the church Bible, it's page 1206, and in the large print, 1868. Chapter 7 of Hebrews spoke about Jesus as a high priest who is exalted above the heavens. And chapter 8 begins like this. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest pointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. For there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. That is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. This is God's word. The book of Hebrews, as we've seen, walks us around the person of Jesus Christ. So we can see him from just about every angle. So we can appreciate just about every aspect of his work and his significance. And Hebrews chapter 8 shows us Jesus, the mediator. A mediator, as the name suggests, is in the middle. He or she stands between two other people who are separated and brings them together. Or at least, in the case of human mediators, tries to bring those two separated parties together. A mediator is a reconciler. 
So what does it mean for Jesus to be the mediator? It means he is the bridge to heaven and the way to relationship with God. That's what Hebrews chapter 8 tells us. First, Jesus is the bridge to heaven. One of the big themes in the Bible is the transcendence of God. The fact that he is greater than us and beyond us. Psalm 115 sums it up by saying, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. God is transcendent. But that raises the question for us then, how can you and I get near him? What's our way in? That question is not unique to Christianity, of course. As far as I'm aware, all religions recognize there is something greater than us. There is an ultimate reality beyond this reality. Every religion agrees on that. And they also agree there is a gap between us and that ultimate reality. There's a separation that needs to be bridged somehow. But where religions part company with one another is a question of how that gap can be bridged. In fact, it's more accurate to say this is where Christianity parts company with every other religion. Every other religion says to us, do this and you will bridge the gap to God. Perform this ceremony or this ritual. Achieve this moral standard or reach this level of commitment and you will cross the gap. You'll be able to connect with ultimate reality. But Christianity says, forget it. There is nothing you can do. By yourself, you cannot cross the gap to the transcendent God. But Christianity says, there is a way in. God himself has bridged the gap. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. And in particular, that is what the central section of the book is about. Chapters 7 to 10 show us the gap between us and ultimate reality. And they also tell us Jesus is the only bridge across the gap. Last week we saw that Jesus is our priest king. In the life of Old Testament Israel, those two roles were kept intentionally separate. But they come together in Jesus Christ. And now having established in chapter 7 that Jesus is our priest king, now we're going to find out what that means for us. How do we benefit from it? Chapter 8, verse 1, have a look again. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. In the Bible, heaven's plural are a way of talking about the sky when I consider the heavens. But what is heaven singular? Is it a place up in the sky somewhere? The Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin was the first human in space. And when he came back, he is reported to have said, when I was up there, I looked and looked 
and looked, but I didn't see God. Now that statement assumes if there is a God, he can be found floating somewhere behind the moon. But the Bible never suggests human beings could take a rocket ride to heaven. The Bible presents heaven as the realm of God. It is another dimension that's hidden from our sight and our touch. It might help if we think about a theater. Imagine a theater with the curtains drawn across the stage. You're in the audience. Now, it's possible for a whole lot of things to go on in that front part, in front of those drawn curtains. Maybe someone comes out and makes a speech from that position. Someone tells a few jokes. There can be a lot of activity in the front of the stage. But everyone in that theater knows the full experience happens when the curtains are pulled back. Then the full depth of the stage opens up. The setting of the play can finally be seen clearly. The actors then really have room to move. Until the curtains are pulled back, you just don't get the full theater experience. And that comes somewhere close to the way heaven is described in the Bible. This world that you and I can see and touch is like the front part of the stage. No doubt, it is real, certainly. But behind the curtain, there's an even greater reality. An ultimate reality. And in the Bible, we sometimes see that curtain being pulled back for just a brief moment. Heaven sometimes breaks into this dimension that we live in. For example, the New Testament tells us heaven broke in at the baptism of Jesus. As Jesus was baptized, we're told, heaven was opened. The Spirit of God was seen descending on Jesus like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son whom I love. In that moment, the curtain was pulled back. Ultimate reality broke into this present reality. We find another example in the book of Acts. When Stephen is being stoned to death by an angry crowd, Stephen says, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen was not claiming there to have a very powerful telescope. No, he was saying that for a moment the curtain had been pulled back for him. So heaven is not a location somewhere between Mars and the moon. It is a greater, more wonderful reality. It's another dimension beyond the one we experience day to day. So it's not about where you are in terms of geography. As if the person orbiting earth in a space station is somehow closer to heaven than the person walking down the street in Pelsall. The geography doesn't matter. Wherever we are, heaven is hidden behind a curtain. And you and I cannot pull the curtain back. William Barclay sums it up like this. In the highest that this world can offer, 
there is some imperfection. It never quite reaches what we know the thing might be. Nothing we ever experience or achieve here quite reaches the ideal that haunts us. The real world is beyond. And here at the start of Hebrews chapter 8, that real world is described as a temple palace. Jesus, we know, is our risen king. And verse 1 says, he has taken his place at the right hand of the throne in heaven. And we know Jesus is our risen priest, who serves, verse 2, in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle in heaven. The Old Testament tabernacle was a work of great craftsmanship. It was the place where God made himself present among his people. After God led the Israelites out of Egypt under Moses' leadership, God gave Moses a detailed blueprint for that tabernacle. The book of Exodus gives us chapter after chapter of instructions for building it. The Israelites were not just to make do when they put the tabernacle together. No expense and no effort were to be spared on the tabernacle. They were to use pure gold, silver, the very best wood, the best linen, the best yarn. And the best artists in all Israel were commissioned to create the tabernacle. Why go to all that effort and expense for a tent in the desert? Because it was the place where God made himself present. The end of Exodus describes God coming and taking up residence in that tent. Now, of course, he wasn't confined there. The tabernacle could not contain all of God. It was more like a footstool for God. But he was truly present there. And he was present behind a curtain. He was inaccessible to anyone except the high priest. And even the high priest could only go behind that curtain once a year. He went there as the people's representative to offer a sacrifice on their behalf. And here, Hebrews wants us to understand that tent, and then later on the temple in Jerusalem that replaced the tent, they were not the real thing. They were a shadowy outline of ultimate reality in heaven. If we go back to our theater analogy, the tabernacle was like a little model sitting on the front of the stage. It was a model of the reality hidden behind the curtain. Look down to verse 5, which is speaking about the Old Testament priests. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Exodus records that after Israel left Egypt, they camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. God called Moses up that mountain and gave him the Old Testament law. And included in that law were the instructions for the tabernacle. 
Apparently, that blueprint for the tabernacle was patterned on the true dwelling place of God. It was a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. Israel was never supposed to think the tabernacle was the real thing. It did give them a rough idea. In a small way, they could begin to appreciate what the reality would be like. As they looked from a distance at that sketch and shadow in the middle of their camp, it was there to give them a longing for the reality. It would have been a sad mistake to think the earthly tabernacle or the earthly temple were the real thing. Or to think the rituals associated with the tabernacle were the real thing. But some people today do make that mistake. They believe the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt someday. But that fails to understand what Hebrews is telling us. Rebuilding the old temple would be a colossal step backwards. The earthly temple was only intended to be temporary. To rebuild it would be to go back to the shadows. What the Bible tells us is that one day heaven and earth will be joined together. The curtain will be removed that separates us. The stage will no longer be divided. God and his creation will be together. So we won't go back to the old temple the copy and shadow. We will be with God in the real temple. And it will all be because of Jesus. You and I can't bridge the gap between us and God. We can't go behind the curtain into the realm of God. But Jesus has. He's the bridge from earth to heaven. Jesus has gone where no other priest could go. He's the way from the shadows to ultimate reality. Earlier, Hebrews has called him our forerunner. If we fix our hope on him, then one day we will be where he is. What does all this tell us? It tells us Jesus did not come to earth so we could live a little bit longer or feel a little bit happier. Jesus didn't come to earth so we could learn some coping mechanisms for life. Those things might be byproducts of following Jesus, but they're not why Jesus came. He came to give us access to ultimate reality. Chapters 9 and 10 are going to tell us in weeks to come how Jesus did that. He bridged the gap by offering himself as a sacrifice. But the rest of chapter 8 gives us another aspect of Jesus' mediation. Not only is he the bridge to heaven, he is the way to relationship with God. Have a look at verse 6. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, that's the Old Testament priests, as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. A covenant 
is a legal arrangement between two parties. It could be two people, it could be two peoples, or in the case of a biblical covenant, it's between God and a people. A covenant always involves promises and obligations. In the Bible, it's always God who sets the terms. The initiative is always his. He makes the promises, he sets the obligations. Humans do not make covenants with God. And when it comes to any covenant that God sets up, the aim is always the same. God explained it. I will be your God and you will be my people. That is the statement God uses again and again. So the aim of God's covenant is unity between God and his people. A genuine, intimate relationship. Reconciliation between the transcendent one and his creation. When verse 6 mentions the old covenant, it's referring to the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. It was a law covenant. And this is how God explained it in Exodus. He said to Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you will obey me, obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. The book of Exodus then goes into great detail about what it means to keep God's covenant. But the key issue is that Israel did not keep it. They rebelled against God's word, they worshipped false gods, and they failed to trust God as their provider again and again. The Old Testament is one long record of Israel's covenant failure. Last week we heard the writer of Hebrews describe the Old Testament priesthood as being weak and useless. It's not that the priesthood was pointless. It showed what it would take to bring reconciliation with God. It would take a perfect, spotless sacrifice. So the work of the Old Testament priests was useful for explaining that. The problem was the Old Testament priests could never bring a good enough sacrifice. That's what made their priesthood weak and useless. And something similar is true of the covenant made at Mount Sinai. It certainly wasn't pointless. It showed what the life of God's people should look like. What it looked like to be godly in human business dealings, in human relationships. And yet, like the Old Testament priesthood, the Sinai covenant was weak and useless when it came to producing a godly people. And so here, verse 6 tells us, Jesus came to be the mediator of a superior covenant. And verse 7 goes on to say, if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. Last week we saw that even in the Old Testament, 
God promised to provide a new priesthood for his people. And here is his Old Testament promise to make a new covenant with his people. Not like the one he made at Mount Sinai. The long quotation here in verses 8 to 12 is from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. And at the end of verse 9, God pinpoints the weakness of the Old Covenant. Israel did not remain faithful to it, and so, God says, I turned away from them. Sin ruins our relationship with God. The book of Habakkuk tells us, God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. And that makes any significant relationship impossible. God turns his face away from us because of our sin. How could that ever be overcome? How could sinful people ever have a relationship with God? We'll look down to verse 12. We'll come back to verses 10 and 11 in a moment. They give us the marks of a new covenant relationship with God. But verse 12 is telling us how a new covenant relationship is even possible. God says, for, in other words, this is the basis of the new covenant. This is how it will be different from the old covenant. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Verse 9 says, sin makes relationship with God impossible. When his people were unfaithful, God turned away from them. But here in verse 12, God says, I will no longer turn away from you. I will turn away from your sin, but not from you. I will do that by separating you from your sin. So I can look on you as my pure, spotless people. How could that be? It's possible because of Jesus, the mediator. Remember, a mediator stands between two people and brings them together. How did Jesus bring us to God? On the cross, he took our sin on himself. And he took the consequence of our sin as well. Sin, remember, makes God turn away. And while the Son of God hung on the cross, bearing our sin, God the Father turned away from his Son. And now, with our sin paid for by Christ's death, the Father turns to you and me. And he says, your wickedness is forgiven. Your sin is forgotten. There's an old hymn that says, What though the accuser rage, and tell of sins that I have done? I know them all, and thousands more. But my God knoweth none. This is what it means for Jesus to be the mediator of the new covenant. He makes relationship with God possible for you and me. It just couldn't happen without Jesus on the cross. His sacrifice is the basis of the new covenant. That's why he called it the new covenant in my blood. Then look finally at the marks of a new covenant relationship with God. There are two of them here. 
First, in verse 10, the relationship with God mediated by Jesus is a relationship that produces new minds and hearts. Verse 10, this is a covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Notice we're not told here that God's laws are now irrelevant. As if obedience and faithfulness don't matter anymore. They matter just as much as ever. But the difference is, when we come to Jesus, God not only forgives our wickedness and forgets our sin, he gives us a new orientation towards obedience and faithfulness. His commands become our blueprint for life. They become our ambition. And in the power of his spirit, our lives begin to be characterized by obedience and faithfulness. So our obedience is not the basis of the new covenant. It doesn't earn us a relationship with God. But obedience is a distinguishing mark of new covenant people. God's commands are not like a foreign language to us as Christians. God's commands are the language of the Christian's heart. Christians know we are God's people because of what Jesus has done. And now we want to live like God's people. We know God smiles on us because of Jesus. We know that he calls us his children because of Jesus. And we want to honor this smiling father that we have. And part of what that involves is recognizing we are not isolated individuals anymore. Our new relationship with God brings us into a new community. That's the second mark of the new covenant mentioned here. Verse 11 says, No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Think of the way our own society is divided. It's divided by income, by social background, by ethnic background, by political views. The world of the New Testament was equally divided. And Old Testament religion did not overcome those divisions. Even the temple had layers of access. If you were a Gentile, if you were a woman, or if you had a disease, your access to the temple was restricted to one degree or another. There were different courts in the temple for different kinds of people. But during his life on earth, Jesus went about overturning those. Remember, he touched people who were considered to be unclean because of disease. He mixed with tax collectors and prostitutes, the untouchable people. The kind of people referred to by respectable people as sinners. But Jesus said, everyone needs my healing touch. 
And in Jesus' ministry, there were no restrictions about who could come to him for forgiveness. The only requirement was to admit you needed Jesus. That by yourself, you had no hope of bridging the gap to God. And here, verse 11 shows this removal of divisions is a mark of the new covenant. They will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. To first century Israelites, we Gentiles were the least. But the New Testament says faith in Jesus makes us a part of Israel, a part of God's people. We are included in Abraham's descendants. We have a place in the people of God. Earlier we read this very clearly put in Galatians. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It's not that those differences disappear. It's that they don't matter anymore. Being part of God's new community doesn't depend on your ancestry. It doesn't matter where you've been or where you haven't been. It doesn't matter what position you have in society. The highest position or no position at all. It doesn't matter whether you're the top or the bottom of the ladder. The least, the greatest, and everyone in between can come to Jesus and know God. And that means the church of Jesus Christ is to be the kind of community you will not find anywhere else. A community where the highly educated and the less educated are on the same level. A community where the wealthy and the less wealthy share the same bread and wine. Where the confident and the less confident can stand side by side and sing together, in Christ alone my hope is found. The church has been described as the pilot program for the life to come. In Christ, we are part of a new humanity. Our life together is to be a foretaste of what's to come. Heaven on earth is still something that's ahead of us. We don't live there yet. We know that. But we do know the bridge to heaven. And when we make Jesus our only hope, we can enjoy a genuine relationship with God. A relationship where our sin is forgiven and forgotten by God. In a few moments we're going to celebrate the new covenant in Jesus' blood. We're going to share this new covenant meal together. But first we're going to give thanks for our mediator. We're going to do that by remembering the gap that Jesus has bridged and remembering our own position now we can approach boldly the throne of God. So first of all, who, O Lord, could save themselves? 
And then boldly I approach.